Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History. We discuss joining here. Mr. D here today to take you through the Great Depression and New Deal history short. I hope you use this, you know, to review. We just cover the unit eighth graders. And then, you know what? If you're interested in the Great Depression, New Deal, and you're listening, that's great. Um, also, if you want to use it to review the reading exam, that's awesome, too. So we left off in the roaring 20s, right? That image of prosperity and, you know, and happiness and return to normalcy. And, you know, it's all going to come to a screeching halt in this unit. Um, I do want to go back, though, that you remember the 20s are much more than just, you know, jazz music and flappers, so make sure you listen to that episode. So Herbert Hoover gets elected in 1928. He's got a very promising political career. He was kind of a shining star, um, and he's going to continue the policies of Coolidge and Harding, you know, that laissez-faire pro-business attitude. Hoover's a Republican, just like his predecessors. I do want to point out that um, we talked about in the last time that credit fueled a lot of the growth of the 20s, and... Many people were buying, you know, buying into that consumer culture and buying things on credit they couldn't necessarily afford because middle class wages weren't doing so hot, as well as farmers weren't doing super well. Um, sometimes in economics, you see that stuff sort of catch up to the the bustling economy, and sometimes it doesn't. And this is one of those times, it does not. So you know, it was fine to have a little bit of you know credit buying consumerism if uh, you know as long as you have a job. And that whole issue is about to rear its ugly head pretty soon here. So the first thing I want to talk about is the stock market crash of 1929. Now, many historians credit this with the start of the Depression, as do you know New York State and their, their curriculum. I do want to point out, though, that the stock market crashing in 1929 maybe is the starting gun, but it's not what makes this a full-blown Depression. So let's talk about the stock market crash. Why did this happen in 1929? You know, first of all, poor Hubert Hoover. He's in office for a year, and then this happens. Um, so why did it happen? Well, investors are buying and selling stock on what's called on the margin or on credit. And this creates an artificial image that the stock market's doing super well. Um, Companies and shares appear to be more valuable than they actually are. You know, if you're buying the stock and it's on credit, do you really own it? No, that third-party broker does. Or if you're buying that stock over time from the company. Um, So these were some pretty, you know, when people would buy stocks and sell them and trade them too quickly. So this is a lot of inflation in the stock market. Not inflation in the economic policy with currency, but it kind of looks artificially inflated. It's kind of a fake, uh, a fake high for the stock market, I guess you could say. Now, this becomes clear. You now, stock starts getting sold pretty quickly, and share prices drop, leading to the crash in 1929. Whenever I think of the stock market crash, I always think of that image of uh, the guy he's dressed in Wall Street, it looks like, in a very nice suit, and he's got a sign outside of his car and says, you know, $100 will buy this car. I've lost it all in the stock market. I want to point out that car is probably worth way more than $100, even in that time. And, you know, the type of Americans that were impacted at first by the stock market crash were wealthy Americans. You know, we give this thing credit for starting the depression, but only 2% of Americans own stocks. So the impact wasn't immediately felt. And by 1930, you know, and life sort of is kind of continuing for most Americans. You know, that that 2% for sure is hit hard um, by this and that'll eventually affect the rest of the economy. But 
The thing that really makes this an awful experience is the collapse of the banking system. And that'll trickle down and trickle throughout everyone. Banks had a few regulations at the time, um, just like the stock market had a few regulations. Today, the SEC, Security Exchange Commission, regulates the stock market, which we'll kind of learn our lesson from this whole episode. Um, but the banking system has almost no regulations either. And the banking system will go under pretty early in the 1930s. Um, they're giving out poor loans. They're lying about how much money the bank actually has. And so, you know, there's a very famous story that, you know, this this merchant in the Bronx goes to get his money out of, uh, out of his bank. And, you know, he wants all of the money when he hears of kind of a funky merger and he tries to take it all out and they're kind of try to talk him out of it. And he's given his money, but he spreads the story. And then all of a sudden, you know, like a wildfire that spreads across America, whether or not that's true to the certain degree. And you know, it's kind of the romanticized image that we, we kind of have. Um, and so Americans begin hearing reports of banks doing this. They try to withdraw their money quickly and it's called a run on the banks and Americans in some cases are losing their savings. The banks, you know, lose their money. This is why a lot of, you know, older Americans, some of them just don't trust banks. Um, so here we have kind of our top down view of some of the causes of the depression, the stock market crash, the buying of stock on credit margin and the collapse of the banking system. The collapse of the bank system will lead to 28 states without having a bank and the economy is stagnant and still Herbert Hoover has just no idea what to do. There's no playbook for this. And it leads to America's worst economic bust of all time, um, before and since. It eventually leads to high levels of unemployment. Americans would be laid off or lose their homes in many cases. Like I said, there's no playbook for this. Whoever tried meeting with businesses and like pleading with them to, you know, keep your people hired, try to keep them on. We'll, we'll get through this, we'll help them out, but they just can't. And as a Republican, he doesn't believe it's the job of the government to intervene in this. He urges churches, charities, even himself. He becomes the first per, uh, president to not take a salary. He himself was very wealthy. Um, you know, so that's that's kind of significant that he, Hoover kind of gets, you know, an, an odd rap. I have a soft spot for him because I did a uh, project time in fourth grade. And so, you know, I've always kind of had a little kinship with, with Herbert Hoover, and I've always found him fascinating. But it's just not in his ideology for the government to step in and do, do anything. In the past, the government didn't intervene in economic depressions, and they sort of just, people weathered the storm. But it wasn't working. This was new, and it needed a new playbook for all this. And Americans began to blame the president. You know, they created these things called Hoovervilles, which were, uh, you know, kind of public spaces, public parks. The one in Central Park was probably the most famous, where uh, Americans would, you know, build shacks in any kind of, you know, housing development, um, you know, handmade uh, quickly in a GIF. And, you know, they would, uh, they would, you know, congregate and live and they called them Hoovervilles because they blamed President Herbert Hoover. Late in his presidency, though, Hoover does a complete 180 and starts something called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, where it's basically a bunch of public works and projects to stimulate the economy, to employ people, one of which is the Boulder Dam, which eventually become the Hoover Dam. Here's the thing. He's running for re-election in 32 when this all kind of fires up, and he's trying his best to do something different. And oddly enough, the guy who will orchestrate the New Deal and sort of copy Hoover's plan criticizes Hoover for spending too much money and putting the country into debt, which is what Hoover wanted to avoid in the first place, but he feels kind of forced into this. So I kind of see Hoover as this almost like tragic figure. Um, by this time, unemployment by 1932-33 is nearing 25%. Almost one in four Americans are uh, unemployed. And the final straw for the Hoover administration, he just can't win this election in 32, is the Bonus Army incident. When a crowd of over 40,000 World War I veterans and their family uh, families demanded early payment 
for their bonuses for serving in World War One. Now, those bonuses weren't due until almost 1940. Um, you know, I've read somewhere that some partial bonuses were due in 39 and others were due in 1948. So they're not due for a long time, and Congress isn't exactly, you know, their, their, their war chests aren't exactly filled with money to hand out either. So they're denied, and they're actually driven out by police, and two veterans were shot under the Attorney General's orders, which indirectly is Herbert Hoover. Um, they camp in a near, nearby park, some of these people, others go home, and Hoover actually orders General Douglas MacArthur, a World War One hero who we'll talk about in two other units later on, and they're very, you know, he's a significant guy, and he drives them out with tanks, tear gas, you know, at bayonet point, and it's just not a good look for the Hoover administration or for the United States government, and, um, you know, it's a sign, it kind of showed the government, it gave the appearance that they didn't care and that they were distant and distant, distant, excuse me. And it was a perfect time for um, a guy like FDR to come in who was so good at being personal with the American people, you know, making them feel like he knew them, he understood them. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt will win the 1932 election. He really, really spoke to the hearts and minds of Americans. Whether you like him or not, FDR is a transformative president. Um, he did have polio and, and was largely crippled for the majority of his presidency. And he changes the way presidents work. Like I said, like him or not, FDR is a very polarizing president. Like him or not, he changes the way presidents operate. Um, he, presidents ever since FDR are more active. They sign more executive orders. They're seen to do more. Um, they try to have a more personal relationship with the American people. He changes the way presidents work. I mean, especially if you're a Democratic president because FDR is a Democrat, you want to be FDR. You know, and he changed the relationship that the presidency has with the American people and the federal government. You know, he, he empowers the federal government to do more in a time of crisis, uh, take a leadership role that government can be a positive force in the life of individuals. And so, you know, he, he's very, very transformative. Um, he promises a new deal. And the new deal basically is the Reconstruction Finance Corporation switched around and on steroids. And it's a, it's a series. The New Deal is a series of federal initiatives designed to fight the Great Depression. And, um, you know, right away in the first 100 days, he passes record numbers of legislation that, you know, um, haven't been in eclipse since. And he, he really gets after it right away. He shows the American people that he's there, he cares, and he wants to get involved, which is, you know, kind of how presidents are seen. You know, want, people want to see their president like that to this day. Um, one thing he did was a, a bank holiday. You know, he wanted to take care of the banking industry in a way. And he closes all banks and only the ones that were deemed to be healthy and uh, submit to new regulation would be reopened. This concerned some people. This concerned some people that he was seasonal to much power, the federal government was. Um, you know, he, had the, he closed all banks and only the ones that he says and the government said could reopen. Um, you know, so that did concern some people. We'll get into that a little bit more uh, in just a second. So, you know, continuing his plan to fight, you know, the Great Depression, his New Deal, he'll institute a series of fireside chats, they're called, which are radio shows. Um, they're called fireside because the radio was kept in Americans' homes, usually by the fireplace. So you were to chat with FDR by the fireside, he, and he would speak directly to you. I want to point that out. That's, you know, he would, it felt like he was in your living room. And you can go listen to some of the recordings of this, and the guy is charismatic, you know. Um, he, he definitely knew how to channel the American people and relate to them as best he could. Some people said that his polio allowed him to do that to, to help them feel, you know, he could sympathize with them in their struggling times. So it's important to know with the New Deal, you got to know this, you got to know the three R's, that the New Deal was designed to provide relief to those struggling, recovery for the economy, and reforms to prevent this from happening again. So the three R's of the New Deal, again, are relief, 
recovery, and reform. All right. So what did some, what did people think of the New Deal? Some people thought it was much too much power uh, for the federal government, that it bordered on socialism and communism, and that FDR was bringing down all the fundamental um, you know foundations that this country was built on, and thought that the New Deal would make Americans far too too dependent on the federal government, and it would rack up way too much debt, and eventually kind of put us under in the end down the road. Others thought that the New Deal didn't go far enough, that the government should be doing more to help people. Um, Senator Huey Long from Louisiana, they pretty much, you know, guys like him wanted to have share the wealth programs where every American was getting a check every month. So, you know, the criticism of the New Deal ranged from all over the place. Some of the key programs to know uh, are the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. So different groups of Americans were hit uh, pretty hard by the Great Depression. One of those were young, uh, was young men. And the goal of the CCC was basically to build up uh, state parks, uh, national parks all over the place. You know, the environment, preserve that, serve that purpose while employing young men. Um, usually the salary is pretty low, but your room and board is paid for, your meals are paid for. So anything you made as a wage, you got to keep and you travel with it too. I want to point out locally that the CCC is very, very influential in this area. Uh, Hamlin Beach State Park was constructed by the CCC, and I believe they had a large hand in Letchworth State Park as well. Then there's the FDIC, one of my favorites, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which was founded to prevent the collapse of the bank system again. FDR and administration takes a huge gamble here at the FDIC. In order to restore faith in banks, federal government says, the FDIC says, that we will insure any deposit up to $2,500. So if the bank goes under, you will have your money. So today they'll insure up to $250,000 per deposit. And the FDIC is very proud of the fact that no depositor has ever lost a penny on a deposit. So the FDIC is a huge deal, kind of similar to the SEC, one of those reform programs um, that is designed to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. You know, SEC was stock market crash like that, never happened again. FDICs prevent a run on the banks. Then we get to the probably the crown jewel of the New Deal, which was Social Security. Social Security was designed to help a variety of group, different groups of Americans, um, orphans and workers of industrial actions, the families of those workers. You know, all it was kind of a catch-all program to what it's, you know, the name of the program, secure yourself within society to feel secure. Eventually, it will transition to um, payments for elderly Americans. And, and the, they were also particularly hit hard by the Great Depression because who's going to hire somebody old, you know? During the Depression, the jobs usually went to husbands first, people with families. Um, and so the elderly, you know, were one of those categories hit pretty hard. And then we get some less successful programs, kind of like the National uh, Recovery Act or the National Industrial Recovery Act. This gave the federal government enormous power to oversee the economy, the president in particular, and the executive branch to you know set wages in some cases, um, almost encourage monopolies to form by the way some of the companies were structured, very controversial. It gets declared unconstitutional pretty quick, and that starts a pretty consistent theme. Another one that wasn't very successful is the Agricultural Adjustment Administration um, trying to set farm prices, fix the, you know things for farmers, also was declared unconstitutional. And more than 70 FDR programs in the New Deal were declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Court. Um, in 1937, you know, FDR is already reelected at this point for a second term. He's frustrated and tries to add more judges to the court. Now, I want to point out there's nine judges in the court. Technically, the Constitution does allow for the executive branch to regulate the number of just- justices on the court. Um, but 
we've they at this point in America's history, FDR's time, you know, we were kind of set with nine judges, and it was kind of seen as a power grab by some people in Congress. And so Congress says no, they strike down that because they would have to approve anything. So FDR kind of, un, you know, 1937 is not a great year for FDR. Uh, not only did he try to pack the court and fail and sort of look like a too powerful of a leader, unemployment during his time in the previous years had dropped from 25% to 14%. So you've got about an 11% drop in unemployment, which, you know, some people said, oh, the New Deal's working well. Now, 14% is still very, very high. But FDR rolled back some programs in 1937 and 38. Things like the CCC went away that, you know, he thought were uh, were temporary. And so, you know, he's doing this because, again, he doesn't want to spend too much money. He's wary of deficit and debt spending. He doesn't want to spend too much. But then another recession hits in 1937-38. And unemployment spikes, uh, spikes excuse me, back up to over 20%. And that with that recession hitting in 37, FDR is throwing his hands up at this point. He's frustrated. He feels like he's lost, like nothing is working. And eventually, it will take the demand of World War II to help bring us out of the Depression. Um, I had an analysis professor in college who told me that you know the New Deal may not have fully ended the Great Depression, but it was like a life raft that threw, you know, you kind of throw a life raft to somebody drowning in the ocean until they're rescued and pulled out of the water. The New Deal served as that life raft. Now, people argue all the time about, you know, to what extent did the New Deal end the Depression? Um, I'm not going to take a side here on the show today, but you know, some historians say, yep, it ended the depression. Other ones say, no, it didn't. It took the demand of world war two. Um, so that you can go look up those arguments by historians. They're, they're absolutely fascinating for average Americans. The family strain of the depression was incredible. Um, some kids left home to not be a burden on their families. I mean, you, and you know, divorce was common. Uh, you know, hunger, not being able to feed your own kids, uh, having to go into soup and bread lines, um, for your meals, this is a you know a time period in the 20s where we're super prosperous, and then you go from you know 60 to zero, you know in reverse really quickly. You know students dropping out of school to try to get a job, to support the families, uh, riding the rails, right? Um, orphans going across the country trying to go from town to town to find work. Now another interesting part of the depression is that it's about 75 percent of Americans were employed. So this is not a time period where we want students to think that everybody is, you know, hungry and on the streets. A good chunk of Americans were, were okay, but, you know, largely underemployed in some cases. And you see a lot of this in the culture of the time. And I want to talk about um, film because film becomes pretty popular in the 30s. You know, we're growing into the Hollywood theme here. And you have uh, two films, Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, two of the most famous films in all of American history, right? All of American cinematic history. Wizard of Oz uh, has heavy, heavy themes of the Great Depression, right? I mean, Dorothy's, first of all, she's in the middle of, you know, Kansas in the Dust Bowl time period during the Great Depression. I'll talk about the Dust Bowl in a minute. And then uh, Gone with the Wind, there's there's scenes in that film, you know, I'll never go hungry again. The idea of desiring wealth and not having to struggle is, is very, very evident in that film. Uh, Wizard of Oz, back to that one, you know, there's no place like home, right? If I only had a brain, if I only had this, if I only had that. There's heavy themes in these films of the Great Depression. And so I want to go to the Dust Bowl now. And the Dust Bowl is probably America's, you know, one of its worst ecological disasters. The Dust Bowl is basically a series of severe dust storms and drought that ravaged the Midwest, coupled with um, plagues of locusts and rabbits eating crops. And, you know, the breadbasket of America basically went dry. Now, why did this happen? Well, part of it was Mother Nature, drought. The other part of it was that farmers were overworking the soil and over, um, 
you know, over overdrawing all the nutrients in the soil in that region by over farming throughout much of the 20s. So take those two things together and you get a really, really terrible disaster. Um, these dust storms almost, you know, would they, I shouldn't say almost, they did. They blacked out the sky in a lot of cases. And they were just, you know, they would go on for so long. And some people, you know, eventually uh, left for California to find jobs, you know, working in farms there while some people chose to stay. So, you know, you can imagine having this land in your family's generations for years and having to leave that or staying and just suffering through all this is absolutely, you know, heart-wrenching. Um, so the Dust Bowl, you know, greatly affecting the Midwest and the Great Plains region, kind of that growth in the West part of the country we talked about. So most importantly, though, what I want to talk about the New Deal and kind of its legacy, it shaped our current lives and our current system of government. And here's some of the ways it did that. Uh, Social Security. I mean, Social Security is one of the biggest parts of our lives. You know, when you're born, you get a number, you know, and you're in the Social Security system, you're paying into it throughout your whole life. You have contact with this every day. That is directly a product of this unit and this time period. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, acting as pardon the phrase, it probably gets overused, is uh, the eyes and ears of her husband, right? A very active first lady. Prior to her, first ladies were not looked at as required to do anything really significant. Eleanor is out in the front, active, doing all sorts of things. And first lady, since her, just like her husband, tried to emulate some of her qualities. Um, Another big change in this time period is that after the New Deal, like it or not, government is more involved in the lives of Americans. We expect as a people, even the most conservative Republican Americans expect our president, our government to do more, be more visible. Um, You know, Social Security is a great example. You know, when it came out, many Republicans were against it. And and to this day, a lot of, even, you know, even a lot of Republicans um, will defend Social Security is important. So, you know, it, it really, really changed our nation, the New Deal and what we expect from our government. Um, presidents try to establish more of a personal relationship. They worry about how things sound, how they'll come off. They try to do things and speak to the American people directly, like FDR did. Um, one thing I didn't talk about a lot was the Wagner Act. The Wagner Act basically establishes a ground level for unions, right? The idea that unions can collectively bargain for things that they want in in um, from their business in place of work. So the Wagner Act is huge from the New Deal and doesn't often get the credit it deserves. Uh, then you have the safeguards, the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, and the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corp., which is are both established to prevent you know the collapse of the banks and the collapse of the stock market. Huge, huge things we still live with. And next on deck, around the corner of all this, you know, in 1939, FDR, the American people are kind of feeling, Man, this can't end. Is this the new normal? Uh, and then we get hit with World War II. Now, the United States economy will kind of get back on its feet in 39 and 40 a little bit as the United States begins to supply the Allied powers. But by 1942-43, you're looking at normal, even really good levels of unemployment. Um, the New Deal, try as hard as it did, never did bring unemployment below 14%. It dropped it for sure and definitely minimized the blow of the Depression. But there you have that again, that debate. And I encourage you to go look at those debates of did the New Deal and the Depression wasn't an effective tool. You know, I asked my students that. And you can really see arguments for both sides. And I love it when they say, oh, I can kind of see both sides. And I'm like, that's good. That means that you're open-minded. You're looking at this and looking at the evidence. And that's really what we want as historians. So we hope you enjoyed today's show. Um, you know, make sure you're using this short well. And uh, tune in next time for the World War II short. Thanks for listening.